0: Well, praise the Lord. Jesus is still risen. He is risen indeed, amen. Amen. Last week for Easter Sunday, we took a brief pause in our study through the Psalms of Ascent and gathered with two other churches. I thought it was an enjoyable time for us to do such a thing on Easter Sunday. I hope you were able to make it and enjoy that time. But I will say, I think There was something strange about preaching to two different congregations joining us that as I reflected and talked with my wife afterwards, I realized the words of my former mentor, Mark Dever. He says, there's just nothing like preaching to your own church. And I was like, yeah. I think for the first time, I really felt that. Like, yes, you all were in the midst, but there was a sense of, I'm really excited about today. Here we are, Embassy Church, those who have covenanted together, those of you who have said, this is my church, and it's no greater group of people I would think I'd want to preach to, you know, and I think there's something to that that I'd like to just express my great gratitude for all of you to make this church possible and see the great work God's done. So let's continue our journey through the Pilgrim Psalms. These Psalms of Ascent are a collection of prayers, poems, songs, In the middle of your Bible, in Psalm 123, we will pick up where we left off two weeks ago. If you're looking for this scripture, it's in page 517 of the black Bibles around you. If you want to modernize what's going on here, it seems to be that these psalms, these poems, were a playlist, if you were to think of this in the 21st century. Three different trips, the Old Testament Israelite faithful would make trips up to Jerusalem from surrounding parts, and then these would be the songs that they would sing to one another. So think of it like your road trip playlist in the car. These would be the things that they would sing as they were on their way to the Passover, the day of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. One of the things I was noticing as I've considered the different way the Psalms speak to us is that most of the Bible speaks to us. But really, when you think about the Psalms, the Psalms speak for us. It's as if we can take these words, as we're about to, Psalm 123, and let them speak for us the words that sometimes we don't know what to say. Friends, that's one of my hopes and prayers, is that as we study the Psalms in this series of the Psalms of Ascent, you will learn more about how to let the Psalms be a prayer guide for you when you speak to God. So again, instead of the Bible addressing you, why don't we let the Bible address God for us? As John Calvin says, the Psalms are the anatomy of every part of our soul, for there is not a single emotion of which any one of us will not feel or have expressed. These here Psalms are represented like a mirror to our soul. I hope and pray that that will be how these psalms, and including this message today, will help us as we journey along on our pilgrimage to not just the city of Jerusalem for a feast, but to the heavenly city, our final home. So our sermon outline for this morning is going to be three parts. The pain, the posture, and the protection. We're going to first look and see the pain of the psalmist, we're going to see the posture, of the psalmist, and then the protection that he has. We see that this psalm has four short verses. I think it's a good reminder for all of us that if you think that spirituality is wrapped up in long prayers, be reminded of the words of Jesus. When you pray, do not heap up many empty phrases like the Gentiles. They think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. So some prayers are long, Many prayers are short. Here we have a short prayer of four verses. Let's all get it together. A song of a sense. To you I lift up my eyes, O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, the contempt of the proud. Well, I think it's obvious when we look at this So we need to begin first with verses 3 and 4. Why is this psalmist looking up to the heavens, to the throne of God, and looking to his master for mercy? It's made quite plain when you see the pain of the psalmist. That's our first point of the outline. Have mercy on us. Have mercy, for we have had more than enough contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn and the contempt of the proud and those who are at ease. So it's quite obvious, isn't it? The pain of the psalmist is scorn. It is contempt. But what is that? What is scorn and contempt? Well, other translations actually say being laughed at being despised or shamed, to feel like you're nothing, to be brought down low. Scorn is disgrace. I want to think about uh, uh, one of the word studies when I was looking at scorn and disgrace and contempt in this passage, the New Testament equivalent that was in Luke chapter 1. Think of the story of Elizabeth. Do you remember the story of Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1? Elizabeth was barren for many, many years. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 25, after the Lord blessed her with a baby, it says, the Lord has taken away my scorn, my disgrace. That's the biblical metaphor, the language of scorn, contempt, disgrace, being laughed at, mocked at. Ha, you can't have a child, Elizabeth. You're, you're a disgrace. What kind of woman are you? Lots of scholars try and figure out what exactly is the context of these two verses, the historical situation behind the psalm. Friends, I I don't think that there's really much we can see with great specificity. The only thing that we know for sure is that these people giving the scorn are proud and they're at ease. The picture seems to be that they're probably wealthy, comfortable, or in some sort of position of power. If we can make it most simply, the pain of the psalmist is what? They are being looked down upon. Somebody who is either more wealthy or more powerful or in just some way feeling more superior is looking down on the psalmist. Both as an individual and then community. Notice the way the psalm begins with, to you, I lift my eyes to the Lord. But then notice the way it says, have mercy upon us. You know, it's the same way that we sing songs here at church. Many of the psalms could be individual or they could be corporate and then here, they're both. Sometimes we sing songs and we say, I and me language, but we're singing them corporately together and we're referring to us as a corporate group together. And that's, I think, clearly what's happening here. So whether it's an individual, or whether it's a group, we as God's people we should look at this psalm and we should ask, certainly we've felt this pain, haven't we? In a world full of sin and scars and pain, we have felt scorn, contempt, disgrace, or friend, Are you just so great that no one's ever looked down upon you? Uh, we, We live in a world where all kinds of contempt and scorn happen for all sorts of terrible reasons. So let's be honest like the psalmist. Let's be honest about the reality of this pain in our own lives. There is the scorn and the disgrace because people look down on us of our skin color or ethnicity. The family background we came from. Something that we can have nothing To change or or, or nothing we can do about it. And yet, that's the world we live in, isn't it? People look down on one another because of skin color. Friends, this should not mark the people of God. We should hate this. Sometimes we're looked down upon because of our body size or the clothes that we wear, our outward external appearance, maybe the car we drive. I remember some guy just the other day, it seemed like, and I'm not sure, But I got the impression he was laughing at me because I was driving a minivan. You know, like, silly things. How long did that bother you, Pastor Phil? Still talking about it, huh? Hey, we all have issues, okay? I'm proud of my minivan and the four children the Lord has blessed me with. But friends, let's be honest. We live in a world where there's all sorts of reasons for people to look down upon us. Have you ever felt dumb? where everyone around you just seemed to be way more educated or smart. Maybe they knew the Bible better than you, and you felt like everyone was looking down on you. Even in the church, yeah, even in the church, sometimes we can feel people looking down on us. You see, the pain that's being experienced here is the sin and evil of other people. As Thomas Watson said, there is more evil in one drop of sin than a whole sea of affliction and let's be honest about some of the pain that we experience in this life. Physical pain, trials, difficulties. Those are terrible. But some of the most difficult pains that we will experience are the sins of our loved ones, a spouse, a family member. I know without a doubt, there's a lot of people in this room that are still dealing with the scars of mom and dad's contempt and scorn looking down on them, disappointed in them. I'm a pastor. (laughs) What what do you think I do when I'm meeting with some of you and dealing with the issues and pains, the struggles that we feel, the reasons why we act the way we do? A lot of the time it's because of the pain we've experienced from those who have been contemptuously, scornfully treating us like we shouldn't be treated. Alec Mateer says that we need to notice in this psalm that it's not just contempt and scorn. That would only be doing half justice of these verses. Look down at verse three and four again. Notice that he's not just saying have mercy on us because there's scorn and contempt in our life. For we have had more than enough. The language here is very strong. The psalmist is basically saying this. I am at the end of my tether. I cannot take it. Now we're being honest. See, this is what I mean. The Psalms need to sometimes speak for us the language that we're sometimes not wanting to admit. And the pains in this world are oftentimes so overwhelming, we don't even want to talk about them or admit them or be honest about them. Maybe this is what you're going through right now, that you are so broken and hurt because of a recent situation. Or maybe this will be you very soon. That's the thing about these sort of messages. This could be the valley you're walking through right now, or friend, this could be the valley that you're walking in very, very soon. So in case you think, well, this isn't applicable to me, everything's going well. Well, friend, as your pastor, know that not everything is going well for the brothers and sisters sitting around you. And if Embassy Church is going to be a church that empathizes with the sorrows of our brothers and sisters— And one of the things that we need to realize is that even when things are well for you, not everything is well for this body. And there are people who are hurting, even this week, who are hurting from pain, from scorn and contempt. Do you know that? Are you praying for them? Is this a church where we're a family together and the pains of other members are our pains? Or is it just whenever you feel pain? That's when it matters. Okay, give me that Psalm 123 message because I'm ready for it now. No, this is for us all as we walk through this pilgrimage and this journey together as a collective family, as a people. And we need to encourage each other to figure out what will be our response. Will it be self-contempt? Will we hear the scorn and the contempt of others and then believe it and say that to ourselves over and over and over again? Yeah, I must be awful. I must be dumb and ugly and worth nothing. Or we'll be retaliatory and we will be the sort of people that we want to then talk negatively about others, take the focus off ourselves. So often what we do, we either look inward and say, yeah, I am awful. Or we look outward and we want to point the finger at others and start showing why we're so much better than someone else. Find some fault in the person that was condemning and contemptuously scornful toward you. Repay evil for evil. As a church family, we need to help and encourage one another to not make that our response when these pains come into our lives. Friends, they will come. So will we respond well? Will we encourage each other well? As Tim Keller said in his book on suffering, no matter how many precautions you take, no matter how well you have put together your life, no matter how hard you've worked, something or someone will inevitably ruin it. Well, there's a chipper thought for this morning. But I think this is why the psalmists are so helpful for the soul. Because they're so honest. This is what we were referring to last week. Christians should be the most realistic people in the world because we're honest about the sin and the suffering in the world. But thankfully, our posture, our hope, won't be so defeating, so negative. We don't need to repay evil for evil. We don't need to look inward. Point two, the posture of the psalmist. Notice verse one. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Verse two, behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. What is the posture of the psalmist? He is not looking inward and beating himself up And hearing the words of his enemies, he is not looking outward and he is not repaying evil for evil. He is not looking at his circumstances and he is not looking down into the dust without any hope. Friends, the posture of the psalmist is to look upward. Upwards to the one enthroned in heaven, the master, the one who has great mercy. As John Bunyan said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Do you believe that? When pain and troubles, sufferings and trials come into your life, do you believe that you can do more after you've prayed, but you can never do more until you've prayed? Our posture should be looking up. Notice here that he says, I lift my eyes and think because of how recently we've heard this, we should be thinking, oh, wasn't that just like Psalm 121? Do you remember Psalm 121? Look back at Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Again, we're not sure what the hills are, but more than likely the hills were a place of danger, a place of scary bandits and thieves and robbers. As they were on their way up to the city of Jerusalem, there would have been those like the parable of the Good Samaritan that would have tried to hurt the person on the journey. So I look my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. This time in Psalm 123, and again, I think all throughout this series, I want us to see some of the progressions of this series. By the time we get to Psalm 123, we've already made our way into the temple, and now he's not talking in general about the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. He says, I lift my eyes up to you. You, O God, enthroned in heaven." It's as if now that we're in the temple and we're closer to the presence of God, he's not just talking generally about his help. He is talking to his help. He's talking to the Lord, the one enthroned in the heavens. When people look down on us, we look up to God. Friends, I think if you were to summarize this psalm into one short sentence, I think that's pretty much it. When people look down upon us, As I think more than likely, it wasn't skin color or body size, some sort of educational level. More than likely, this psalm was written out of the persecution of being a person, a child of God. For their faith, when people look down on us Christians in particular, or any scorn for that matter, we look up to God. He is enthroned in heaven. He is sovereign. He is in control. Suffering will be unbearable. I've had more than enough. Unless you're certain and you're confident there is a God who is on his throne and he is for you and he is with you. We must remind ourselves of the eternal divine perspective. God is high and his perspective is much greater than ours. It reminds me of walking down on the Navy Pier. You guys ever experienced the joys of the Navy Pier? And when you're standing at the the bottom of the ferris wheel and it's apparently removed and getting bigger like i remember walking with our kids like whoa dad it's huge and we're about to get on this thing and you got this massively wonderful view of the lake and the city when you're riding on the ferris wheel but just this past week we flew into chicago friends the perspective of that huge massive ferris wheel from an airplane it kind of looks little <laughs> or even just the 95th floor of the John Hancock building. You see, in our lives, there's many pains and problems that when we're staring at them right in front of us, they seem huge. But if we lift our eyes to the heavens, we see from God's perspective those same problems. They don't seem so big anymore. They're the same size. But man, the change of a divine perspective can change everything for you. The posture of a faithful follower of God that when troubles and pains come their way is to lift their eyes to the one who's enthroned, sovereign and in control. Friends, we must encourage each other as a church about the sovereignty of God, about how this sitting on the throne picture here in the psalm is that these pains are not catching God by surprise, In fact, did you notice that when we were reading Psalm 51, as Ryan was reading over it for us in our Old Testament Scripture reading, there's that phrase in there that says, the bones that you have broke. That's the part of God that we sometimes don't want to acknowledge. Again, let's be honest here. Like the psalmist, God is not blinded by or alarmed by the fact that you're going through such pain and troubles. In fact, in God's divine, sovereign providence, these are the things that he does, as we sang in our first song this morning. Blessed be your name, because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You all know where that comes from, right? The book of Job. It's interesting, I think John Bunyan points this out. It's interesting that in the book of Job, when the pains and troubles of Job's life come, and we know explicitly from chapter 1 that it was Satan who brought these things directly, more specifically, into his life. Why doesn't he say, the Lord gives, but Satan takes away? Because if you read Job 1 very carefully, you'll notice that Satan is not in control. He comes to the Lord. He asks permission. He is a lion that roars fiercely, as First Peter is going to tell us. But he is on a leash. And he he goes and roars no further than what the Lord will allow. So friends, all pains, all troubles, all sufferings in this life, we can know are not catching God by surprise, and therefore, they are never wasted. So we should look to the heavens and see God enthroned in the heavens and take great comfort in the fact that he is seated and no one can take him from that position. That's the first thing in this posture is we're looking upward. We're looking to the heavens. The second posture you'll notice in verse 2 is that we're looking more specifically as as a servant looks to his master. Notice the posture of a servant. Until he has mercy, the end of verse 2 says, so our eyes look to the Lord like a servant does to the hand of his master or the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of the mistress. This servant posture is one of longing and waiting until an answer is given. This is why we read in Luke chapter 18 this morning, the persistent pleading of the widow, repeatedly again and again coming to the unjust judge, and him even being an unjust judge. Notice, he says, I want this woman to stop bothering me. I will give her justice. So how much more a God who is just, and righteous so friends be encouraged to persistently pray and wait and pray and wait and pray and wait when you ask God for things do you have any timetable in your mind are you normally thinking two hours two days is two weeks too long what about two months two years Friends, one of the things that we need to get straight is that God being on his throne also means that as we are servants, as we have a servant posture in prayer, we ask God for his mercy, and he gives it in his will, in his way. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he will do it in his time, in his way. So if you're expecting it now, and you're impatient for it, realize you might be a very discouraged Christian. As John Flavel once says, it is a greater mercy to have a willing heart and to enjoy this mercy more so than the eager and impatient mercy we're asking for. For in this, God is pleased, and in this, you will please God. There is a greater mercy, he says, to just have the willing, patient, servant like heart asking God for mercy. That is a greater mercy. Than the actual thing you're asking for. I wonder how many of you think that perspective is true. That God might be doing something greater in your waiting than by giving you something that you're asking for. The mercy, the grace, the freedom from whatever trial you might be dealing with. What if God wants to change you very slowly through your pain, rather than quickly stop your pain? And what if that would actually be better for you? Well, if you were God, you would know what's best for you. And that's why we trust him as a servant. Some might object, where is God when I'm crying and crying and beating my breast? And I hear no answer. God is on his throne. He is nowhere else. and He is not going to flatter us by telling us yes or no every single time we ask, right when we ask God, will not humor us in our impatience. He will do it according to his will. That's the words of Samuel Rutherford. You know, I think when I was considering this posture of prayer, we look up to the heavens and we have a bent downward, It's kind of contradictory when you think about it, because I was really liking the way Psalm uh, 123 matches well with our New Testament reading this morning, Luke chapter 18. Persistent praying, but then also the contempt of those Pharisees that look down on the tax collector in the temple and says, oh God, I'm thankful that I'm not like those tax collectors. And then God says, the tax collector beats his breast, and it says what? He felt so unworthy, he couldn't even look up to heaven. There's so many parallels between this Psalm and Luke 18. I'd I'd encourage you to read it again later and and notice the the connection between looking up to the heavens and beating your breasts. And then even the prayer of the tax collector is what? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It seems as if Jesus in these two parables is portraying well Psalm 123 in story form. So I thought there was an interesting story. I think this was from Jonathan Edwards about the carrot and the horse. I don't know if you've heard this story, but it's helpful for you, getting your posture in prayer as a servant right. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous, giant carrot. So he took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown and I'm sure ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect to you, O king. The king was mightily touched, discerned the man's heart so as the gardener turned to go to the king the king said wait you are clearly a good steward of the earth i own a plot of land that is right next to yours i want to give you this plot of land freely and i want you to garden it all as you like the gardener was amazed delighted and went home with great joy but there was a nobleman he was nearby the king's court and overheard all that had attended between the king and the gardener. And he said, my, if that is what you can get for giving a big carrot, well, wonder what will happen if I give the king something better. So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I have bred these horses, and this is my greatest horse that I have ever bred and ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my great love and respect to you. But the king, discerning and knowing the nobleman's heart, said, thank you. He took the horse, dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed, staring, and the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Friends, do you know the difference Sometimes I think when we lack a servant posture in our prayers, a servant posture in our giving, a servant posture in our worship, we think that God's going to just give us his mercy as it's some sort of exchange. Oh, okay, okay, God, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna go to church. I'm gonna give you these things. Okay, now I get back. That's how this works, right? Friends, the servant posture that looks up to the God who is on his throne we understand. God gives his mercy as he delights. And if you want to give to him, give to him not because you're expecting some sort of reward in return or you've got some sort of lever. You can manipulate God wherever he is. No, he's the master. We're the servant. And we look to him as a servant in a posture, bowed down, beating our chest. Have mercy on So what is the posture of your head? Can you look up into the heavens and see God on his throne? What is the posture of your heart? Are you a servant looking to your master? But I want us to press further. What are you specifically looking at with your eyes? Which leads us to our third and final point, the protection that comes to the psalmist. The protection that comes to the psalmist. Why is it that he says, I look to the Lord as A servant looks to the hand of his master. What what is this metaphor trying to communicate to us? A servant was a much different category than you and I have categories for. So when you think of slaves and servants, you think of African slave trade. You think of men and women who are looking down on with scorn and contempt and hurting and beating and whipping and treating awfully people for the sake of their work. This is not the picture here in the Old Testament, nor do we see it in most of Scripture, a very different idea. So take your mind out of 21st century ideas of slavery and get yourself more in the idea of an indentured servant that is working to pay off a debt. And in this case, the master is actually doing the person a favor. So put yourself in the shoes of having someone, some sort of debt that you just can't repay. You're you're in big, big trouble. And then somebody says, listen, listen. I will give you a job to help you pay off that debt and I will take care of you. I will feed you. I'll give you a home. That's more the picture that's going on here. So this servant looking to his master, they're having provisions, protections, care for. This is not someone that they're looking at the hand and wondering if the hand is going to beat them with the whip. So when you look at the master's hand, what do you see? John Calvin says that servants were at the mercy of their master and if someone ever attacked them or picked on them or laughed at them, they weren't allowed to defend themselves. The master had to step in and defend them for them. Do You see the picture, friends? We're servants and our master needs to step in when we have pains and troubles from the sins that are coming from outside. When scorn and contempt comes, We don't need to defend ourselves. We have a master, and he will make all wrongs right. We do not need to repay evil for evil. We can repay evil with grace and love and mercy. Because when we look at the hand of God, when we look and stare at the hand of his master, I want to encourage you, maybe even today, if you have time this afternoon or later this week, spend time Google searching it if you have to, or reading through the Bible, the hand of God. The metaphor of what does God's hand do in Scripture? This was one of the things I was struck by as I was studying this passage this week. The servant looks to the eyes of his master's hand. For what? Well, in this context, it seems the hand t- for protection, for the hand of provision, the hand to, to care for this servant. But, friends, as followers of God, as those who see what God's hand does in Scripture, we can look to God's hand all through Scripture and see that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. His hands formed and fashioned this world. His hands, Job ten, eight says, They fashioned and made us. Isaiah 64, 8 says that we are clay and he's the potter, and we are the work of his hands. Job 12.10, in his hand is life, and every living thing and every breath is in his hand. Isaiah 40.12 says that he has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span. How big are the heavens? How vast are the oceans? To God, they're about that big. That's his hand. You guys ever go out to the beach and just... It's huge, it's massive, it's overwhelming. About that big. The span of his hand. He has powerful hands. First Chronicles twenty nine twelve says, says, riches and honors come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand are power, and in your hand are might. Power, might, and strength. They make, they form, they sustain. All of life is held by his hand. How about Daniel chapter 4? The sovereign Lord on his throne. For his dominion and everlasting kingdom will rule from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does everything according to his will in the host of heavens, and no one can say to him, What have you done? or hold back his hand. No one can hold back his hand. The power and might of his hand, the sovereign rule of his hand, no one can stop his hand. Fear not, I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God, I will strengthen and give you aid. Uphold you by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Friends, this is what it looks like when Christians and followers of God look to the hand of God, our Master, and see that sovereign, powerful hand protecting, saving, delivering as they said in Exodus thirteen three, remember the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? It was by the strong hand of God that you were taken through. Taken through the waters as they were saved and rescued. God's hand. This is what it looks like to stare at the hand of God and see the great power, might, and his protection for you. But this leaves us It's a terrible question. What if God's hand is not protecting you? What if you are God's enemies? What if Ezekiel 6:14 would be true of you? I stretch out my hand against them and I make them a desolate wasteland. Or as Psalm 138 says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life, and you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, your right hand delivers me from my enemies. You see, the hand of God is great when he's protecting you. But what if the hand of God is against you? What if you are God's enemy and that hand that formed and fashioned the world and you and sustains everything, that hand that can't be stopped is coming against you? Friends, you should fear this morning if that's your case, your Lot right now is that you do not know if God is for you or against you. There is only one greater pain and sorrow than the contempt and scorn we feel in this world, and it would be the contempt and scorn of God as His hand would come against us as an enemy. So, what's the solution to this problem, this hand of God that is against His enemies? And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you need to understand that the Bible doesn't say that we're neutral. The Bible does not present a picture of us being in the middle. If you're here this morning and you're not sure, then there's a good chance that you're an enemy of God. The, The description is that we're all born into sin, and because of that sin, God's hand is against us. And his righteous right hand will righteously pour down wrath on sinners. And the reason why any of us can have any hope or confidence in the midst of pain and trouble this morning isn't because of how righteous and good we are, We're not looking down on other people around us and saying, hey, this is the gathering this morning of all the the right and morally upright people. This is the gathering of people who already know themselves to be sinners, know themselves to be in need of protection from the righteous right hand of God's awful wrath. And we have found that because of Jesus. Friends, this is how the whole Bible comes together. There's really no answer given in Psalm 123. To you, I lift my eyes. I ask and I plead for mercy. And then it just ends. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Is God faithful? Will he hear this prayer? The answer to this is a resounding yes. And the reason that we know this to be true is not because we look to the hand of the Master, but we look to the hand of the Master's Son, Jesus. We see the Master's Son given to us down from his throne in heaven, stooping down low. See, now if there's anybody that should be looking with scorn and contempt, it's God. If there's anybody that should be looking down on us, it's God, right? Jesus has every right to look down on you and me, but instead, he gets lower. He doesn't look down, he looks up at us. He becomes the servant you could say. Philippians chapter 2 says he did not account quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. And so what did God's mighty hand look like in the person of Jesus? It looked pierced, my friends. Pierced hands. And after a week after celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and knowing that Jesus' resurrected body still had the pierced hand marks when Thomas said, show me your hand. Makes me wonder if for all of eternity we will see the hands of God in the person of Jesus marked with pierced hands. So we will never ever forget that the reason why God's righteous wrath did not fall on us is because it fell on Jesus Christ. It fell right into his hands as he was pierced to a cross, died the death we deserved, and rose victoriously from the grave three days later. Hallelujah as we'll sing in just a minute, actually. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to come this morning with great thanks for the hand of God, its mighty strong, protecting hand. But we're especially grateful right now in this moment of frailty, of being freshly reminded of how humble and sinful we truly need to be in a position and posture like a servant. And knowing that Jesus became a servant so we could be a son, we could be a daughter. God, we are so grateful for this gift so thankful for the enduring of suffering or so thankful that even though you cried and you prayed and you asked repeatedly again and again take the cup that you ultimately had the posture of a servant and died a death that we deserved what a glorious gospel what a wonderful hope and what a new identity that we now have in Jesus Christ we give you thanks for this We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.